We are in Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, all summer long. It's one of the wisdom writing collections of the Bible. And today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're really going to start to uh, unpack some of the wisdom specifically of the book. Because the first six chapters, if you've been with us, you know, it's been really an exercise in exposing the vanity or the meaninglessness of often uh, things that we can do with our lives apart from the will of God. Uh, the, the series title that's on your bulletin is Under the Sun. And this is this Hebrew phrase that comes up to basically uh, look at life apart from God. If all there was was your earthly existence, everything would be meaningless in the end. But today we're going to transition to the way Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, is going to look for some ways to live life under the sun that will mean something or that will do things for your life that will, it says, give you life. So the key verse, and we're going to start in verse one, but we're going to look at the key verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 11. And it's all about the power or the benefit of living your life with wisdom. It says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. So what he's saying is, you know, we just said, here's some ways you can give. And you guys probably know the power of money to operate as a defense of your life. If, if you get sick, if you uh, have an opportunity to invest in something and, and eventually make more money, money allows you to set up some guardrails to your life so that you can pay the bills, put food on the table, and do some things that God's calling you to do. So as a church, we said, hey, here's a, one way that we can do well by the resources God gave us is, well, why don't we raise some money to keep uh, defending the work of God at our church. And, and Solomon says, now think about the same thing, but with wisdom, just like money can do, uh, help your life go well. Wisdom can do what money can do in a way that as Solomon will say, will give life to your life. He says in verse 12, for wisdom is a defense, just like money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. In other words, wisdom is actually better than money. That's why in the beginning of that one verse, he says, it's pretty good to have wisdom if you get an inheritance. If you come into a lot of money, if you win the lottery, if, if someone passes away and leaves you money, if you get some breakthrough and success in your life, you better know what you're going to do with the money because it can fly, it can grow wings and fly away pretty quick. If you don't have wisdom, you eventually won't have money. If you do have wisdom, you can use it as a defense of your life. And what today is going to really show us is what we just looked at with a comparison between wisdom and money. There's all sorts of ways that wisdom will come into your life to show you the better way, to show you something that's better than what you would have originally thought. When you start living by God's wisdom, it's going to course correct your life, and it's going to give you the excellence of life if you live by wisdom. And that's why it's exciting to study the Word of God when it offers these proverbs or these moments of truth and says, if you do this with your life, things will go well. And like all wisdom that we have to navigate with the Bible, it really approaches us, it hits our senses in a way that makes us uncomfortable at times. In fact, one of the most uh, popular Proverbs that many of you have probably heard or memorized is Proverbs chapter 3. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust God. His wisdom will not always make sense to your own understanding. And then Proverbs 3 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. 
When you really want to start having the life that God wants to give you with his wisdom and his knowledge and his understanding, it will probably violate things about your life that you would do otherwise. If it was just you calling the shots, if it was just you living according to what you think makes sense or with the wisdom of your own eyes, it probably would not perfectly line up with God. And all of us have experienced how sometimes we look back on decisions we've made in life and thought, probably would have been better if I'd done the exact opposite. The last couple of years has been really a, a, a picture of so many people looking back and saying, that would have been better if we'd done the exact opposite, whether it was the way that we navigated the pandemic or the way we navigate church or the way we navigate sometimes the relationships of our life. We oftentimes choose the thing that we think is good and it turns out to be bad. So before we get into Proverbs chapter 7 and all the ways he's going to show us a better way that will not seem obvious to us when we read it, uh, I like to get a picture that we can maybe cling to. When we see it in someone else, it's sometimes easier to see it in ourselves. And so I will offer to you this morning, seeing it with my children, maybe your children, in the way that they often choose their way in spite of it being the better way. Uh, an ongoing battle in our household is around the topic of food, right? Parents, anytime you try to navigate life with your kids, you gotta train them in the way they should go with their diet. And my wife, who's sitting right over here, she is an amazing cook. The Bible says, let another man praise you, you not yourself. So I'm praising her right now. She's amazing. I hope that someday you can taste it and not just hear how good her food is. Um, but my kids don't really believe that, which I'm so sorry to tell you. She makes the most delicious food that is good and it's organic and it's wholesome and it's got vegetables and it's got savory things that will do well for your body. I'm learning to love it personally, but my kids would rather eat snow cones. Isn't that the way it goes? They'd literally rather have a ball of snow with sugar syrup than the food that my wife gives them. And then we know as adults, what's the better way? My kids would be shocked to truly believe that there is a better way than snow cones, but it is better to eat wholesome, vegetable, sustaining food than snow cones every day. And we look at it as adults and we're like, clearly, and that's obvious. Some of you are like, yeah, I still struggle with myself. But clearly, children show us that human nature is to not pick the better way. This morning, you are the children of God. <laughs> And I am going to ask you to consider those things in your life that you would choose for your own diet. You would choose for your way in your eyes. And God says, I actually want to give you something that may not taste as good to you initially. It may not be as good for your initial experience with the diet that I want to give your life. But it is actually the better way. It will bring life and life more abundant if you trust the way that wisdom creates the life for you to live. And so we're going to see a series of better than statements. This is a very common device when the Proverbs uh, give us these ways to live our life. They'll compare two things. And they aren't necessarily a good thing and a bad thing. They're oftentimes two things that have a surprising answer as to which one is better. And today we'll have a, a list of surprising ways that the Word of God and the wisdom of God chooses the better way in a way that we would not choose for ourselves. And it will get increasingly more challenging as we go. The first one is verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. So he's gonna give us a picture. It's better to have good name or a good character, a good reputation 
than to have ointment. And there's uh, all sorts of ways that the ancient culture would look at ointment, but one of them is that they were just people who didn't have access to these magical things that we have attached to our walls that just spit out clean shower and soap dispensers. And so they were often people who had to figure out how to mask some of the smells of everyday life living under the sun. And so ointment represents your ability to give a good first impression. And what the uh, writer this morning is saying is even better than a good first impression, even better than having something to where when you enter the room, you're not violating people with your smell, is that people would know that you are a person of high character. I had this in my own life, even this morning, without really thinking of how my life represented this conundrum. But um, because I'm a spiritual person this morning, when I came in, I went right past the prayer room and into the gym. And I started shooting hoops, right? Because it's like, that's a fun thing to do Sunday morning. And I was able to talk one of the pastors into playing basketball with me. And, you know, it's hard to sometimes not get competitive. So by the time I'm done, I'm coming into first service. I'm just dripping with sweat. <laughs> like, hey, everybody. And uh, I'm a hugger. So I, I realized, I'm like, this is, this is the proverb right here. I wish I smelled better, but you know I love you. I'm going to give you a hug. And you know that my character supersedes my smell. And this is a decision all of you have to make, that your life will have all sorts of ways that you have to decide between the first impression or the surface level relationship or the things that you can do to impress people or to have a lifelong commitment to the character of God as the witness of your life everywhere you go. That when people know your name, they think of the name of this church or the name of your business or the name of your family, they think, I know I can trust them. They represent to me, whether they know it or not, in our theology, the fruit of the Spirit. They're kind and they're gentle and they're long-suffering and they're caring for their neighbor and they care for me. And when we think about it, now we can understand what this proverb is really getting at. The day of death is better than the day of birth. This is the challenge of the better way this morning because we don't often think of the comparison between holding a newborn baby in your arms and the joy of the potential of where God would take this new life. And you compare that to the loss of someone that you love deeply or the loss of life that you have to make an account for. And we think in our natural wisdom and what we view, well, of course, fresh life is better than no life. And yet what he's saying is if you live your life committed to the character of God, being a witness to his goodness and letting his, his uh, will direct your life everywhere you go, it will be better when your story ends than when your story was just getting started. It will be better when we know the full picture of the grace of God on your life. When someone can give an account of what you meant to their life once it was all said and done, that is better than a world of potential with a newborn baby. Hard to believe, but it's good to think about, especially when we think of the next better way. In verse 2, it says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. So now we get more understanding with these proverbs as they unfold. How could the day of death be better than the day of birth? Well, because the funeral is better than the birthday party. It is better for us to be people who are so aware of the timeline of life that it is very clear. God knew you in your mother's womb and you've been appointed once to die and then you meet him face to face. And that window goes by in a blink of an eye. 70 years, 80 if you're of good strength, mostly, mostly filled with sorrow and labor. And what happens when we come into the funeral? 
all of us get this instant reminder that God is real and life is fleeting and we better get uh, uh, very tenderhearted to what we're living for. And that's precisely what does happen as someone who has the honor of going to funerals pretty often. It is, there's no better ground for the gospel to be preached and to be received than when this church is filled with people from all walks of life, from all sorts of religious backgrounds, but they have death staring them in the face. And when that's true, it's better to preach the gospel than in a morning like this. Where there's, this is a morning where there's feasting, literally. We are joyful, we're drinking our coffee, we're coming in to praise God, and some of you are literally in seasons of joy right now. We'll get to that in the Word this morning. But some of you come here with a heavy heart. Some of you have gone through seasons of your life this week that remind you that what we're doing this morning is not just a religious activity. What we do to come and praise God and open his word is part of the preparation for the day you will meet him face to face. And why do you know that? It's because you got another reminder that someone in your life did not live forever. Someone in your life agreed with the statistic that one out of every one persons die. And you're reminded of that. And I'm reminding of you of that this morning as I walk through that in my own life. Every time I study the word, and this is true of your life as well, the Lord will use the word to give you a lens of life. That's one of the reasons that I encourage you to be students of God's word. Because tomorrow morning, something will happen in your life that the word of God will give you a lens for so that you understand what God's doing. And that happens in my life as I study the word. I study, it's better to go in the house of mourning. I'm going to come in on a Sunday morning in the middle of summer in Boise, Idaho, and I'm going to tell everyone it's good to be mourning. And then I get the call from Gage Duke, my faithful friend. Is he here? I don't know if Gage is here. He usually sits right over there. Gage was around all the way back in the beginning that I first became a preacher when I was down at the district, the underground district, when we were the underground 40 people. I see Chris. I see some of you guys were down there. And how many of you remember Cannoli Joe? He was just the just a dear person in our heart, that early days of ministry where everybody that came, you're like, we got another person who's joining. And Cannoli Joe... He loved cannolis, as you may have guessed. And he just was a joy to all of our hearts. And we would see him, and then we wouldn't see him for a while. And, and, uh, and Gage called me, left a voicemail, and said, Hey, this is a sad voicemail, but I just found out Cannoli Joe died. And I thought, oh. And then I remember the word. This is actually a good thing for my life, to go through the process of mourning and ask God, and look to God to inform me on what this means for Gage and me and all the friends and you who hear this. And I'm reminded of Moses as he was crying out in Psalm chapter 90. And he said, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I would gain a heart of wisdom. And that's precisely what happens when you go through a season of mourning, when you go through a season of loss. The Lord wants to give you a heart that would receive wisdom. And that's what happens in my life. I'm like, how, how am I as a friend? How do I do it keeping in touch with people? How am I as an encourager? What if some of the friends I have now I won't see again? How do I connect with people? How do I thank Gage? How do we, and it just turned into this moment where our friendships were being stirred up, everyone who know, knew and loved him. And, and I pray that would, that would be the true result of what happens when you go through those seasons of life, that you would gain a heart of wisdom. Because we're going to go through the Ecclesiastes and we're, as a church, we'll go through other moments where the wisdom of God comes out. And a lot of us will not receive it. 
for certain seasons of our life. We won't receive it because we're good. We're doing good stuff with our life and we got a plan and it's working. But you know who will receive it? You know who does listen to the heart of wisdom portrayed in the, in the, in the word? People who are mourning. People who say, I need answers for my life. If you're mourning this morning, God brought you in to say, I have you right where I want you. And then we get a build on what that house of mourning is supposed to accomplish in your life because it says in verse three, sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. A word we don't use often. Mirth could maybe better be translated the house of amusement. And here we, here we again, we have a picture of two houses and we have, you're looking in the window and you see some people weeping and sad and comforting one another and then you see another house and they got the game on. And they're sitting around and they're eating their food and they're waiting for their team to win and they're all slapping five. This is not a message to say one is bad and the other one is good. This is a message to say, which is actually better for your soul? Which house does God want to place you in from time to time? And he says that sadness is actually better than laughter for the health of your soul. That there will be times in your life where God wants to remove you from the amusement park of the world. From the amusements of television and Netflix and TikTok and Twitter. The amusement of all of our sports and the amusement and the mirth of all of our partying that can so easily be a stiff arm to the reality of death and sadness. Because the world is a sad place. And he wants to bring you close to himself so that he can heal your heart through a tender heart of sadness. And I challenge or ask many of you to think through your journey with God. And think through the times in your life where he was more than just a distant God. Think through the times in your journey with Jesus and the word when you were so in love with him. And then mark how many of those times had some season of sadness attached to them. A loss brokenness, confusion, business, economy, going the opposite direction. Again, this week I was preparing this and, and one of the better ways that I'm teaching my children is the better way to do bedtime. Because if it was up to them, they'd stay up as late as they could. In fact, right around bedtime, my son is now in this habit where he's like, is it morning or night right now? I'm like, it's definitely night. He's like, dang. I'm like, it's like late. Let's go to bed. So I put my kids in bed and I shut off the light and I I listen in and I hear one of them crying. And I come in and I say, are you crying because you have to go to bed? And she said, no. I'm crying because I don't want you to die. And I thought, oh, well, now I'm crying. <laughs> that, is, that is a heavy thing for a kid to, to say. She has taken the reality of death to heart for some reason. And you know what happens in sadness of a child? They'll let you be the closest dad in the world. So when she's crying because she's thinking of this day when someday I'll be in heaven and she'll be on earth, I hold her close. And we have a moment that is indescribable in our exchange for love. And in the same way, there are friends and, and people and family members and neighbors in your life that are going to go through a season of sadness. And your job is to be what this says. A, a sorrow is better than laughter because by sadness of heart or by sad of countenance, the heart is made better. 
There is such a willingness for something to be poured into you when you're sad. If you're going through something hard right now, know that God's design for sorrow that gives him glory is for him to shape you and mold you through that sadness that would bring healing. This is not a message to say, you know, work on your mental health and stay depressed for the rest of your life and just lean into your sadness and spiral out of control until you do nothing. This is to say that sadness brings healing. And as a preacher and a pastor and as a fellow brother in Christ, I submit to you that we live in a world that needs healing right now. We live in a world, as I look out on the newsfeed and the laughter of the fools that are stiff-arming the reality of death, I see a world that needs incredible healing in the power of God. We need healing for our divided nation. We need healing for our confused kids. We need healing for our families that are starting to feel broken as the world and the riptide of culture pulls away friendships and relationships for one another. And there are times when this time that we live in stirs in us anger, and that's fine, righteous indignation. As the world becomes increasingly dark, the believers and the light that we want to shine into the darkness speaks truth that the darkness will not like. But this morning, we get another better way of healing. And if you want to know how God brings healings, it is often when the people of God finally get sad. When they finally have a a, a desire to see the world change that would bring them to tears. A desire to see their child repent, repent and come back home that would cause them to weep before the Lord. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus gives us the paradigm of his strategy of ministry. He goes from city to city, village to village. And he's bringing everything he can to bless people. Preaching the kingdom of good news. The kingdom of loving God and loving neighbor and entering in, not by good works, but by the grace of God. And he's bringing practical help. It says he's healing all sorts of sickness. And as he's on this ministry tour in Matthew 9... There's this really important part for us to learn how to follow Jesus. He says he looks out on his day. He looks out on his cities. He sees San Francisco and Portland and Seattle and New York and all of these cities that just seem to be deteriorating from the inside. And it says that he was moved with compassion. It says that his heart was heavy for these people. He says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. Other translations of compassion is that he suffered with them. Sadness precedes repentance. The kindness of God is waiting on the other side of your sadness, and it is a godly sorrow that turns into God blessing your life and comforting you, as Jesus gave the constitution of the kingdom on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He said, here is the steps to get in. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, you you bring an open hand to God and say, Lord, I got nothing, but I need help. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those are the two doorways that enter into the Beatitudes, the blessings of the Sermon on the Mount. And what are we mourning? We're mourning the loss of the will of God in our life. We're mourning the righteousness that God has for us that we've, we've turned our back to, and we're mourning all of the foolish mistakes that we've made apart from God. We're mourning the, the, the way that our life is not walking in the better way, not using the wisdom of God to honor God and to be used by God. And when we begin to feel sad over the state of our life, God's Holy Spirit comes and comforts us, and it says, sadness makes the heart better. 
And now there's another better way. It says, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. There's a picture, another ancient picture maybe, where you have the pot that's being heated up. You're making something. And underneath, you just keep feeding it with the, with, the, with the brush. And you're like keeping it hot. And he says, you listen to that crackling as it burns away. That is the laughter of fools. And I think of the day and age we live in. And all of the noise. Just noise everywhere. And people's ideas and people's entertainment and the mirth and amusement. And it's just fading away. Just all vanity. And he says, the better way is this. The better way, instead of listening to the song of fools, instead of listening to the noise of the culture, what if you could listen to the rebuke of someone who's wiser than you, someone using the wisdom of God to help you correct your life? Now, if you're like me, that feels like vegetables on a hot day when I want snow cones. (laughs) I don't love the rebuke of wise people. Not many people I know are like, hey, where's the ministry of rebuke at your church? Because I just really need some correction right now. And uh, I can just sense my life is just a little bit loose right now. And I just want to get back into the word. Can you just give me some wise people and they can just they can just rebuke me? (laughs) It's like the opposite of that. In fact, I was talking to a young person this week, and I, I was trying to help them navigate those questions that young people have to ask. What am I doing with my life? What am I going to study? What's my career going to be? Where am I going to live? And who are my people? And I said, what is the foundation of your worldview? What do you believe? What do you think is really important to life? Because you can't really answer the questions of purpose and the questions of calling and the questions of community if you don't even know what you believe. And so you know what she said? She said what the culture says. I believe everyone should do exactly what they want. I don't want to mess with them, and I'll do exactly what I want. And you can never tell anyone that they're not exactly who they want to be or who they feel like they are or what they feel like they should do or what they feel like is right. Whatever they feel is right. Whatever I feel is right. Unless you believe in Jesus, but that's a side topic. And what does the word say? It is better to hear rebuke. So if we want to be people of God, we have to reject this idea that the world says, let everyone be exactly who they want to be. And if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be open to the idea that most people are on a broad path that leads to destruction. And Jesus says there's a narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. And if you read the Gospels, which I encourage all of you to do, it will be a case study in godly, loving rebuke. You guys have made the traditions of men more important than the word of God. You guys started to serve the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath serving you. You guys do all of your religious practice so that people would see you and that you do not worship unto God. And he came and he cleaned everything up through correction. And yet, what do we want? So often the culture has bled into our hearts and our minds so much that we expect from God what the culture expects from us. I'll do what I want. Don't change my mind. When I come to church, I expect the pastor to give me a smile and a sermon that feels great and I'll be on my way till next week. And I will apologize in advance if you think that this is that church. The the goal of reading the word, the goal of studying God's wisdom is the pursuit of rebuke. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not make plans that have more to do with what you're after than what God's kingdom is all about. 
And the rebuke that we offer one another is one of the better ways. This is one of the ways we are supposed to be people who avoid the vanity of life by just doing whatever we want and plugging our ears when someone that's wiser than us says this is what life is about. So I encourage you, first, be someone that will hear it. Be someone that will receive the word of God with a heart that will allow it to be planted and bear fruit. And to do that, the word of God is calling you to a narrow way. It's calling you to pick up a cross and die to all sorts of things that you must be rebuked in or corrected from. And when you feel like you're a humble person that reads the word of God to receive correction, you're probably ready to, with humility, start offering advice to people. To start caring for young people who are confused and they need to be shepherded. They are sheep without a shepherd and the Lord of compassion sees a great harvest. If only someone would say, stop living your life as though you're the God or this culture is the God and start knowing the actual creator God who sent his son into this world to die for your sins, to give you newness of life and to follow him in everything that you do. And better is that than the song of fools. Verse 8, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The end is better than the beginning. This is another better way that I hope requires some of us to pause and say, I'm going to correct this. Because if you're like me, And if you're like many people who need to hear the word of God this morning, the beginning is always the best part. Don't we love new beginnings when we get to do the brand new thing and it's exciting? I mean, look no further than, well, maybe our youth group, but hopefully our college age, falling in love. Isn't it fun when people are like the beginning stages of romance? Literal cartoon butterflies and hearts coming out of their eyes and they can no longer speak to anyone but each other and they just look at each other all day long and it's like, this is an amazing feeling. I hope all of you are thinking back to your time with your uh, longevity relationship of marriage and think back to the beginning because it is amazing. And that picture can be overlaid to so many other amazing pursuits of life that feel so right in the beginning. It is fun to be in a new city. Welcome to Boise. I'm glad that some of you have have chosen Boise as your new beginning, and it's so fun. I Actually, I love everyone I meet that is new to our church because they have that new beginning aroma on them. It's like, this is the best city in the world. These mountains are incredible. This church is the best I've ever been to. And I'm like, stick around. (laughs) The foothills foothills get boring. The the church is still the best. but. But it's true. I mean, we do it with church, don't we? It's like, okay. The beginning is awesome. It's fun to hear the, the sermon for the first time, but after a while, the stories get old. I'm sorry, I talk about my kids a lot. After a while, it's like the songs get old. And you know what's really exciting when you, when you start to feel that old kind of stale season of life? Let's do a new thing. Let's go to a new church. Let's go to a new city. Let's maybe break up and date some new people. And yet the word today says the end is better. Why? Because patient in spirit is better. Let patience have its perfect work. It's better to be patient than to be proud. Oh, this is, this, this is over. I'm doing something new. And here's one of the remedies for how we get this better way. It's something that we, we change our perspective in. He says, do not hasten your spirit to be angry, 
For anger rests in the bosoms of fool. And in this anger, as things plateau, as the beginning glory wears off, and now you're in the tredge of the middle. As you think back to 2019, it was the glory days of America, and now you're in this world of who knows what. Don't get mad. And in your anger, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning these things. And isn't that the beginning of giving up on something? The beginning of wanting the new thing instead of finishing the old thing is like, I don't think that we're ever going to top the glory days. I don't know if we'll ever be able to beat the beginning of our relationship or the beginning of this city. I think the only answer is to find some new glory days because it's never getting better than it was. A dangerous way to live your life. I think of the story of Exodus, and Tom Velasco will be resuming that study on Wednesday nights after the book of Revelation, but we're right at that point where the children of Israel are walking through the wilderness. They've been freed from slavery by the miracles of God, 10 plagues, the Red Sea has been parted, God is leading them through the desert. And what do they say? Don't really love the food plan that we're on. It'd be nice if we could get back to the onions. It's like onions, really? <laughs> You'd rather be a slave eating onions than have to t- a, a trip across the desert to get to the promised land where there's a land flowing with milk and honey. And we laugh as if we're different because we all do it. God's like, I will save you. I will set you free from sin. I will show you how to have a thriving relationship. I will place you in a community of believers where you will grow to know me and love people. And then you will hit the middle where it feels dark. And Psalm 23 will be read, the shadow of the valley of death. And you will feel distant from that initial excitement. And the joy of salvation has just turned into everyday discipleship, and you've read the Bible. And you've, you went to the mission field, and it's years later now, and it's hard. You started the business, and the economy turned. I wish we could go backwards. It is better to get to the end than try to go back to the beginning. It is better to see how God will get you through the desert and through the next miracle and through to the next promise of his promised land than to try to recreate the glory of the beginning because the glory days weren't as glorious as you remember them. We have a really interesting way to edit the past, to make the glory days seem great and the current days seem horrible. And I'm grateful as a pastor of a church to just read this and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the ways that I do this because this church has had some amazing seasons. I think of our beginning and we were downtown blues bouquet, just reaching out to people that were partying in downtown Boise before it was cool. And we found Pete under the bush and he got saved and baptized. And it's like, wow, that guy is amazing and it's really working. And then God faithfully just guides us and leads us. And then remember the tent days? People wear it like a badge of honor to be in the tent. We were just loving the Lord. We're sending missionaries. We're seeing God move and people getting saved. And as all things goes, then you go through the ups and the downs. Then you go through the next challenge. And you start to glorify the past and you start to undermine the present and you start to lose hope in the future. And I'm so grateful for the word for this church this morning. God is still on the throne He still meets us every time we gather. Every time we open his word, he still speaks to us. Who are we to say, God, what you did could never be topped. What you did to get us here is about as good as you're good for. So I believe 
that the word can correct the vision for this church, the vision for this church age, as if the 60s were going to be better than the 30s or wherever we're going, 2030s. And I believe that each one of you have some rebuke and course correction in the way that you give God your future, the way that you give God the future of your marriage and your family and your jobs and your money and your experience in following Jesus. The end is better than the beginning. It is better to continue to follow and to see what door he opens next and to add it to the collection of your days of following him than continually look back and say, God, I liked it better in the early days. God is still on the throne and he has started a good work in you and he is faithful to complete it. Do not look back and think that God cannot top what he's already done. And this is how we will end this morning. Because everything I've said gives you a decision really to make about what you think is the better way. You are all children in faith. And God's calling all of us to grow up into the stature of the better way. And all of us can look at these forks in the road and say, really, mourning? I, I prefer laughter. Sadness? Really? Is it, is it really better to, to continually not give up on things and fight till the end? Or can't we just restart once in a while? And in the wisdom of the word, we'll now get the authority by which these better ways are given. Because it says in verse 13, consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So in this passage of scripture, as we consider all of these ways that the wisdom of God is better than the wisdom of man, now Solomon says, who are you to argue with God? Who are you to argue with the way that God has made the crooked line straight and the straight line crooked? Who are you to argue with God in the way that his wisdom leads you to the life that he has for you? He says, some of you have joy this morning. Some of you have the day of prosperity. Be joyful. And certainly, this sanctuary has some prosperity going on. Come in and be joyful unto God's glory. You are joyful today because God is good and he has sovereignly blessed your life so that you experience the goodness today. And some of you have adversity today. Some of you have come in and you're like, I just need a sermon to get me to the next day. I'm struggling. The, the belt loop is getting tight. My, my faith is just wandering. My relationships are hard. And it says, surely God has appointed both days. And how are you supposed to view both those days? With the humility that you have no idea which way the storyline is going next. The joy may continue for the next week, year, 10 years, prosperity and joy. And as God, as God gives you that, he will continue to give you reasons to grow in him, to trust him, and to thank him for everything you have. The day may turn very quickly. Who knows what the future of the church age looks like. We're living in the day of joy today, and it could turn very quickly. We don't know what it holds, but what we do know is that God will use both days. If we walk in wisdom, if we choose the better way and receive hard days with mourning that leads to healing and trust in God, he will use both days. And who are we to say and argue with him as though he has not appointed them for a purpose? Whatever day you're in today, he is appointed for a purpose, for you to learn the better way of wisdom. 
And whether it's adversity or joy, he is appointing you to trust him for tomorrow. And so we will end with the confidence that we have in this message that is fulfilled in a way that Solomon couldn't have imagined. Because what I'm asking some of you to do is have faith that adversity will turn into joy. That some of these better ways that are very difficult to go through as you trust God and walk in wisdom, he actually will honor them and give you life. And so we again preach the gospel. We, we look to the day when God proved to us in a moment of history the way that he uses the greatness of adversity to turn into victory. And so we preach the gospel. There's no more adversity than the cross of Christ. That is, in the human eyes and the wisdom that we can see with our own sight, it is the most tragic day that he who knew no sin, he never broke the command. He never violated the law of God. He, he never had any part in the messiness of the fallen world that we live in. Jesus of Nazareth, the visible image of the invisible God. And the one person in all of human history that never sinned took on the wrath of the world. God punished his cross with the sin of every single one of us. Is that a day of adversity? That is a tragic day of adversity in our eyes. And yet, it says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured that day. And the day between resurrection on Friday and, and or, uh, crucifixion on Friday and resurrection on Sunday, there was a day on Saturday where it looked completely lost. His disciples were scattered. They saw no vision for resurrection. And God used the greatest tragedy and the greatest adversity to turn into the greatest victory. When the tomb was rolled away and Jesus walks out with newness of life that he offers to all of us, the same spirit raising him from the grave, now available to anyone who asks, will turn any adversity, will turn any tragedy, will turn any loss of life and any death into the triumph of victory according to the powerful will of God for the day that he has appointed in your life. No matter what you're going through, the gospel comes to say, trust God, choose the better way, pick up your cross and see how God redeems every area of your life. And that's what Ecclesiastes 7 is all about.